May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. They're called adrenaline junkies. You know these people? They, um, they sometimes will do things like bungee jump off of a bridge or strap skis on their feet and jump out of a helicopter onto the top of a mountain and ski down virgin snow to the bottom. Sometimes they'll um, climb the sheer face of a mountain or kayak down a river with whitewater rapids. Adrenaline junkies need danger. They need that thrill of danger because when they get in that moment, there is this instinctual response that kicks in. It's called the fight or flight response. What's the fight or flight response, you ask? I'm glad you asked because I was going to tell you. This is when you are in a moment where you have only one of two choices for survival. Either you fight your way out or you flee. These are your only two choices. You must take one of them. Suppose for a moment that you and I were hiking, just the two of us, through a trail in the, um, the Great Smoky Mountains down in Tennessee. And we're walking along and yakking and doing what we do. And we walk around the corner and there we are faced with a very large, full-grown black bear staring right at us. We get to that thing, that point, we're going to do one of two things. Well, you're going to look around for a rock or a stick or something to throw at him because you're braver than I am. I am going to drop to my knees and begin to tie my shoes really tight. Because I need to run. And I don't need to outrun the bear, I just need to outrun you. (laughs) You're going to fight, I'm going to flee, we're going to react in just that way. Staring down the tooth end of a hungry bear, one of those things, I mean, staring down the other end of a bear might also bring a different type of fear. (laughs) But staring down the tooth end of a bear might make you really want to do something uh, and and fight or or flee or something like that. It's an instinctual response. It's what comes out, it's what's hardwired into our bodies to do. Now here's the thing, when we get to that fight or flight moment... All of us, part of our body's makeup, the way that we're designed, there would be a huge release of adrenaline. Natural chemical inside your body is going to release. And at the moment that happens, your heart is going to start racing fast. Your breathing will pick up. Your oxygen intake will be huge. Your muscles will expand. And you will immediately, also from your pituitary gland, you'll feel this endorphin release will come out into your brain. So you will feel instantly stronger, more courageous, ironically, you'll feel happier, you will have a rush of of positive moment of energy. What's more, should you survive this bear attack, you're going to feel good for hours afterward. You will feel good for uh, for a long time. And that's why some people seek out extreme sports or adventure to get exactly this. They're looking for that adrenaline high. And for the feeling that exists long after this. If you ask somebody who's a real adrenaline junkie, why do you do it? They will tell you, because it makes me feel alive. It's ironic though, isn't it? Because they're already alive. They really are alive. Why do you have to feel alive when you are in fact alive? And I thought about how different somebody might um, react if you went perhaps to, say, the cancer center at UH Hospital. Um... 
if you went to the dialysis uh, wing at uh, Cleveland Clinic, if you went to places like this, I don't think people would be saying, boy, I can't wait to get out of here and go climb a mountain. You know, I, All I want to do is get on a mountain bike and ride down. The, they probably, I mean, some might, you know, but by and large, they wouldn't. Probably what you'll hear if you go to places like that is all I want to do is sit out on the patio and drink a cup of coffee with somebody I love. I just want to see my daughter walk down the aisle at her wedding. I want to see my son walk across the stage at his graduation. You see, the things that they would think about aren't the sort of adrenaline rush. They would be thinking about the things that are really important in life. Oh, I mean, you might be in that moment if you had, unfortunately, had them be in there, where you say to yourself, you know, I just want to write a bull named Fu Manchu. Um, have you ever heard that country song? <laughs> I want to write a, maybe you would want to write a bull name, and maybe that would be okay. But I don't think most people would want to do that. I think most of them, and the people that I've experienced in this situation, react quite differently. If they have a solemn diagnosis, The things that I see, and I've seen it many times in people, is that they tend to be more forgiving than they ever were. They let go of grudges that they held on to for a long time. People who have a solemn diagnosis, a fatal one, tend to be more tender in their love toward family and friends. They tend to recognize the gravity of the moment. And they see time as much more precious than they ever had. The thing that I've noticed in the people who have this sort of diagnosis where time is short is that they're nothing like adrenaline junkies at all. Nothing at all. For the past several weeks, we have sort of been living in John's Gospel, chapters 13 to 17. We're kind of wrapping up that section now. It's what's called the farewell discourse. This is Jesus' sort of last words to his friends. It's, it's Passover evening. It's actually the evening before. It's Thursday night, and they're getting ready to go into the Passover weekend. Jesus has gathered his friends for a meal. They're, they're all together, and he begins to go into this long discourse about what's going to happen next because he knows what's going to happen. Within 24 hours, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be tried and convicted. He's going to be sentenced to death beaten and ultimately crucified. Before 24 hours are up from this moment, he will be dead and in a tomb. And he tells his friends it's going to happen. But he also tells them things like, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. Trust in God, trust in me. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'll send you another comforter, another just like me. You're going to be okay. The Holy Spirit has been with you and he shall be in you. I mean, all of these warm and wonderful promises. But as we get to chapter 17, the gospel lesson for today, we kind of come to the end of this discourse. But there's something that happens here that is is real noticeable. It's subtle and yet it's really important. Jesus turns his attention away from his conversation to his friends. And while he's still in their sight... And in their hearing, sitting with them at the table, presumably, he does this. Look, look with me. Will you open up the, the gospel lesson and look at this f- with me? The very first verse in here, in chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus looks up into heaven. You see this? He looks his eyes upward towards the heavens and he says, Father. Now, uh, maybe if you kind of dig back in your memories to if you, any of you had Latin class, 
Um, there are different cases in, in Latin. This actually was written in Greek, but it has a very similar thing. And that is the vocative case. Do you remember the vocative? This is the, the case of, the, the, of direct address. If somebody speaks to you, if they call you by name, somebody spoke to me and said, Hey, Joe, you would write Joe in the vocative case. In this case, Jesus says, Father, in the vocative. He's speaking to God. And so his conversation has turned from this horizontal plane where he's talking to his friends to a vertical one. That's right, yeah. (laughs) Horizontal to a vertical. He's no longer speaking to his friends, but he's speaking to God on their behalf. He looks up to to heaven and says, Father, the hour has come. It's time. It's time to be arrested, tried, and executed. It's going to happen. But that's not where it ends, right? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given Him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given. Jesus has glorified the Father with His life, but how is He going to glorify Him now? The hour has come. Glorify Glorify the Son. How will Jesus bring glory to God, though? By His death on the cross, right? And so His death on the cross is going to bring glory to God. But there's a little bit here in the translation that's a little, it's a little whopper-jawed, really. There are some, some ways in which I think it could be done better. If I was translating this verse, it would do like this. Look at verse 2. Instead of saying, since, just as, or just like you gave Him authority over all flesh, so that... He may give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. So that, for the purpose of... These are missing in the, in the English translations and most of them, but they are clearly present in the Greek. That Jesus is saying, glorify the Son so that He may glorify you and that He may, by this glorification, give life, eternal life, to all whom you have given Him. Well, that brings up a big question. What in the world does He mean by eternal life? And somebody says, come on, Father Joe, did you miss Sunday school? I mean, come on. We knew this when we were six, right? It's going to heaven. Then we're going to go to heaven. I believe in going to heaven. But I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Because he doesn't say, die and go to heaven. He says, rather, that you would have life, that they would have life eternal. And then verse 3, he defines it. Look with me. He defines it. And this is eternal life. Dying, disembodied spirit floating up into heaven. That's not what he says. This is eternal life. That you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. What does it mean to have eternal life? It means to know God. If you have to wait for eternal life until death, Death then becomes the way in which you know God. And Jesus doesn't want us to wait till we die to know God. He wants us to know God in the here and now. And in fact, even in the creed, we don't say we believe that we'll die and go to heaven. That's not what we actually say. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. What are you saying? Do you not believe in heaven? Of course I believe in heaven. Of course I do. But heaven is not the beginning of eternal life. Eternal life is intended to begin now. In the real life. Real life. 
A recognition that God is present with us in the here and now. But there is an important distinction. There is a distinction between knowing about God and actually knowing God. You can know a lot of facts about God and not actually know God. You may know a lot of facts about a lot of things and not actually be intimately, or people, and not be intimately uh, in connected with him. Uh, biographies. Anybody ever read biographies? I'm crazy about biographies. I love to read them. Some of my favorites, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, John Wesley, Abraham Lincoln, Ronald Reagan. I have Ronald Reagan's autobiography. You should read it sometime. Fantastic. But you know what? I've never met a single one of those people. They could walk up to me today, and there is so much that I wouldn't know about them. I mean, so much that you would... You could read every biography about whoever you want, and you would not know that person. Studying theology, facts about God, is not the same thing as knowing God. Studying theology is helpful. It can be edifying. There's a lot of good things about it. But it is not knowing God. Abby and I have been married um, 25 years now. I've known her more than half of my life. And there are still things that I don't know about her. There's still more that I come to know. I don't know how she can go from a big purse to a little purse and then back up. I don't know where that comes from. She'll tell me about it someday. There's a secret. There's a mystery there. I know things about my children. I know their idiosyncratic moments. You know, their little, their little idiosyncrasies. I know sometimes how they're going to react before they react. I've lived with them for decades now. But I keep finding more and more out about them every day. I discover something else. I hear something that somebody says that they've done, they did at school or, or I see them respond to something in a way that I didn't expect and I realize that I, I know more now about them than I did yesterday. And you know that's true in your life. Whether it's a spouse or a child or a nephew or an aunt or whoever is important to you, that you have these moments where you realize that a relationship is different than understanding data. The dad is not a relationship. And understanding facts about God, if you could understand the Bible front to cover, or front, front to back, <laughs> cover to cover, if you could understand all of that's in there, and it, and it completely made sense to you, but you don't know God, you are poorer still than ever. In uh, 1965, the 75-year-old German theologian Paul Tillich passed away. Paul Tillich was regarded as one of the most important theologians of the 20th century. He wrote scores of books. He taught at most prestigious universities in the world, both in Germany and at the United States. He finally ended at, um, at Columbia University, at uh, Union Theological Seminary there in Columbia. And after his death, his wife was going through his things and through his desk. And, um, and she opened up a drawer and found a cache of love letters to other women and um, many other things about him. And she eventually wrote this very brutal and honest autobiography of her own. Here's what she says. She said, I unlocked the drawers. All the girls' photos fell out, letters and poems, passionate appeal and disgust. Beside the drawer, which were supposed to contain his spiritual harvest, the books he had written and the unpublished manuscripts all lay in unprotected confusion. I was tempted to place between the sacred pages of his highly esteemed life work those obscene signs of the real life that he had transformed into. Ouch. He knew probably more than anyone else, you know, the intricacies of academic theology 
and yet there was only signs of death. Now listen, I know every one of us struggles with sin. Me, you, all of us. None of us are free from it this side of eternity. That it's real and it's part of the the life that we live. But let me tell you, this is death, what you see in Tillich. It's not life, it's death. It's decay that eats away. A secret life hidden that is full of death and dying. And this is not what God wants for us. He wants us to live open and honest and ever sanctifying, purifying lives. This is what we pray at the beginning of every service, right? Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, so that we can perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. This is what Jesus wants for us, to know God and to know life and to know it here and now. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.